gums bleeding. Cried every evening, it was all about eating. When I became a teen, it was all about beef, and now I'm ready for the world. Hey guys, welcome to episode 56. This is a very special episode because this week is actually the three-year anniversary of when I started working on the podcast. It's really amazing how much things have changed since then because when I first started out, I still had a lot of unexplored corners of my own relationship to food. And I was really curious about other people's experiences because I knew that we all have our own journey and our own struggles and some of us struggle more than others. So my own struggles in my 20s had made me feel very alone and ashamed. And when I started to listen to interview podcasts where people revealed dark secrets about themselves and parts of their history, including issues with food, I started to feel a lot less alone. And that's kind of what sparked the idea for Food Psych. So when I came up with the idea, the aim was just to explore people's relationships to food in all their various forms and to show listeners who might be struggling that they're not alone. But something really interesting happened because of that. On episode 13, which I recorded in the summer of 2013, I spoke to two guests who both had eating disorders that went under the radar and were never really given an official diagnosis or formal treatment. I called that episode anorexish, and I recognized that my own history was very much the same as theirs, and I started really reflecting on what I had gone through and, you know realizing that a lot of people silently struggle with eating disorders and never receive a diagnosis or proper treatment because they don't, quote, look sick enough or don't reach a weight that's considered medically unstable. And I recognize that I had actually been one of those people. So at the time, I was already working as a nutritionist in the nutrition policy field. But the epiphany I had after episode 13 really led me to start pursuing training in eating disorders and made me decide I wanted to specialize in this field. Um, so the podcast really changed the course of my career and my life. You know, it helped me process my own eating disorder history. And so I have so much gratitude for this show and so much gratitude for you guys who help me keep doing what I'm doing and who, who get a benefit from it. So I just want to thank you for listening. And, um, I also have a lot of deep gratitude for today's guest who runs the treatment center where I did my first training in eating disorders. So Melanie Rogers is the founder and CEO of Balance Eating Disorder Treatment Center in New York City, and she's just an amazing person as well as a recovered professional who treats eating disorders. She was the first person I ever met who had her own eating disorder history and now works to help others recover. And I soon discovered there's this whole community of other professionals out there, other recovered folks, and Melanie introduced me to some of them. So I realized that, you know, far from being a liability like I had worried and feared it might be, my history actually helps me connect with eating disorder clients and help them recover and gives people hope to see someone who's made it to the other side. So I can't wait to share my conversation with Melanie in just a minute. But first, I want to point you to a couple of great resources for helping improve your relationship with food. The first is my free quiz to assess your relationship with food and see how healthy it is. I'll send you your results via email along with more than a dozen personalized, individualized tips to help you make peace with food wherever you might fall on the spectrum right now. Take the quiz and get your results today at christyharrison.com slash quiz. That's christyharrison.com slash quiz. The second resource I want to share is my Intuitive Eating Online course. It's a 13-week program that I created to help you work through all the principles of intuitive eating in depth and really demystify and troubleshoot the common areas where people tend to get stuck. I'll show you how to recognize the diet mentality even in its subtle forms and how to start substituting healthy thoughts instead. 
I'll share my secrets to making food and exercise choices from a place of self-care rather than self-control. And I'll teach you how to navigate emotional eating and how to stop alternating between restricting and overeating and so, so, so much more. Several participants have shared that the course has helped them make peace with their quote off-limits foods already. As one participant put it after trying one of their quote-unquote bad foods, I felt free, sweet, sweet freedom. Why was I so afraid of this food? I doubt I'll feel the need to buy another package when this one's gone, but just knowing it's off the bad list tastes and feels like a huge epiphany. What a moment of power. Participants are also having major revelations about how the diet mentality is hanging on in hidden ways. As one participant put it, before doing this module, I really thought I had given up the diet mentality. Now I realize that although I consciously reject dieting, I still have plenty of work to do towards accepting myself as I am. It was great. It really helped me identify what I need to work on by bringing it to my full awareness. And yet another participant shared this beautiful revelation she had in the course. My worth is not my weight or my looks, but my heart, mind, and soul. I need to trade in my self-judgment for self-love and compassion. It feels impossible some days, but I'm going to do my best. I deserve it. If you'd like to join others on this intuitive eating journey and have some beautiful revelations of your own, go to christyharrison.com course to learn more and sign up. That's christyharrison.com course. And then finally, if you like the podcast and want to help us reach more people who need to hear the body positive message, you can leave us a great review on iTunes. And I really appreciate people who've left reviews so far. Just open up iTunes on your computer, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click the result that comes up under podcasts, and then go to the ratings and reviews tab. There you can leave a rating and review sharing what you love about the podcast. And I'm so, so grateful for these nice reviews because they help bring us up in the ratings and help more people find these positive messages. Okay, without further ado, let's hear from Melanie Rogers. Here we are in her office at Balance in New York City. So tell me about your relationship to food growing up. My relationship to food growing up. I grew up in the country and um, when I was a kid, we had a vegetable garden, a mm. large vegetable garden in our backyard. In our backyard. So I grew up with my mum saying, Melanie, go down to the garden and get some carrots and mm. some corn and whatever for dinner and going down and pulling the carrots out of the garden and bringing them back for dinner and then complaining to her as to – why aren't we like everyone else who gets their vegetables in a plastic bag at the supermarket? Why do we have oh to God. pull them out of the ground? I associated that we harvest our, our own food as being a symbol of us being poor. Mm. So that was my association with it. Yeah. When I look back now, I think, oh, my goodness, I grew up with this completely organic yeah. food you know, source in my life. Um, but that back then it was like, we, we must be really poor because we have to grow our own food. Wow. <laughs> it's so interesting how those things have changed, right? Because yeah. now it's almost a symbol of status to have those vegetables in your garden. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. And the whole organic, organic thing and, you know, yeah. re, the whole recycling and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my family's very connected to the land. We have been in my hometown for, I think I'm eighth generation. Wow. And the hometown I'm from, it's in a valley and it's a very, um, it's a very fertile area. So there's a lot of market gardens there as mm-hmm. part of the local economy and also a lot of, um, orchards. Mm-hmm. So, and my grandfather was a, a guy who worked in the markets and had his own market gardens and this mm-hmm. sort of thing. So I've grown up with, 
my grandfather would come over once a week with a big case of, you know, fresh apples or fresh peaches or fresh apricots. And so you'd come home at night and I was straight off the tree. So between that and the vegetable garden in the backyard, I think it was actually quite ideal Mm -hmm. when I think back. Yeah. And at the time it was just what you did and... Again, I was envious of the kids that bought their stuff at the supermarket. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> like I wanted to be wrapped in plastic because that's more fun. Yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Wow. So that's, yeah, a very organic relationship to food and mm-hmm. you harvested a lot of your own stuff. Did you learn how to cook as well at the time? Or? Somewhat. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, so mm-hmm. she did most of the cooking. She taught us the basics. Like when I grew up, we were very much – small town, you know, very kind of blue collar, which means it was meat and three veg Mm -hmm. practically every night. So you get very sick of meat and three veg. Um, But I certainly know how to steam the three veg. Um, My family was pretty healthy, actually. They got onto some health kicks really early on, and Mm -hmm. I attribute that actually to my grandmother. So my dad's mum, she um, way ahead of her time went and saw this doctor who was a nutritionist. Mm. So this is when I was a kid. So we're talking like 30 to 40 years ago. Wow. I still remember his name. Dr. Cox was his (laughs) name. And uh, she would swear by anything that he had to say. So back then people used to boil their vegetables, right? Mm -hmm. And then they got into that double steamer um, saucepan that came out. And so my grandmother embraced that. And so we embraced that at home. So there was a lot of that kind of, I would say, healthy type of food preparation also going mm-hmm. on. Yeah, so that and, and being able to cook meat every single night. <laughs> <laughs> Which was okay per that nutritionist. Is like- yeah, well, it was interesting because we did definitely go through the reduction in the red meat phase. Mm-hmm. So, And also red meat is really expensive, but we definitely had red meat a couple of nights a week, but then we'd have chicken and we'd have more the white meats. Mm-hmm. My dad was a really big fisherman, so he would go off and fish and he'd bring back fresh fish. Mm-hmm. So we'd freeze that and we'd have fresh fish, you know, over the next six months as well. Wow. And then his dad was um, had grown up on the farm and was a sheep shearer. Mm-hmm. And, of course, growing up on the farm, they used to slaughter their own animals. So every year, I think, my dad and my grandfather would um, slaughter a, you know, they'd get a sheep that had been slaughtered and then mm-hmm. they would, you know, do the whole butchery thing themselves. It was a lot cheaper to kind of do that. So, right. so there was a lot of hands-on with the food, I think, like literally mm-hmm. hunting and gathering. My dad's um, also a big hunter in the sense that he likes to go rabbiting. So uh-huh. we grew up on like rabbits, which I hate. Oh. <laughs> I hate rabbits. Oh. Again, touching onto that poor thing. Yeah. And I don't know that it was that we were so poor. I think it was just that my dad was really resourceful and he's like, yeah. there's free food out there and I like rabbit. I don't care if you don't like rabbit, you know. So it was really very much that. But, again, we grew up on um, a pretty lean diet when Mm -hmm. you think of it from that respect. A lot, a lot of fish. We ate fish two or three times a week. Wow. Along with, you know, a little bit of red meat and um, and some chicken and that sort of thing, lamb. Yeah, so not a lot of stuff from the store. Like no snack foods or, you know, whatever, the sort of TV dinners of the time. No, definitely no TV dinners in my house. No, no. My um, mom and both my grandmothers, again, about relationship to food, again, because you're growing up in that kind of a 
country environment and there's a surplus of, depending on the season, you know, there might mm. be a surplus of apricots or it might be peach season or whatever or the tomato season, they would then do a lot of bottling mm -hmm. of fruits or veg, um, make their own tomato sauce, make their own jams. Yeah. Um, so they were very, uh, very again, very, very hands-on mm -hmm. in, in using what they had around them and preserving it. So quite an old-school way of doing things, which right. is totally lost now. I mean, neither yeah. my sister or I do that or have any interest. Uh -huh. I'm very happy with Heinz yes. ketchup. That's interesting. And it's funny too, because this, you know, again, is one of those things that people now do with free time and luxury, right? It's like taking a, a canning class or right. jam making or something is, is a luxury of people that have the time to do it. Yeah. Although I think still in certain communities, probably it's a necessity too. So it's like yeah. the high and the low. I think so. I think so. And I, I think it's, it, I would suggest that probably in a lot of farming communities, people yeah. still do it right. Yeah, totally. It's a necessity. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for your, your family was sort of one of the few in that community that still did it. Or did you say there were other people around you that were doing that too? I think there were others around doing it, but I, I think it was um, not the norm. Mm -hmm. I think that my mom and my grandmother's it was kind of a little bit more of a specialty, you know, mm -hmm. and they were known for their jams and they were known for their, you know, oh, wow. homemade ketchup, tomato sauce. And, um, and so they were known for, for those kinds of things. I think the older generation certainly, but I think in my mum's generation, I think a lot of her friends were like, I'm not doing that. That's too right. hard. <laughs> And that's when like convenience started to be a real thing, right? It was, it was marketed and sold to housewives as like, this is the way of the future to, you know, use prepackaged products to feed your family. Oh, ab absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the only prepackaged thing my mom ever used, I'm not joking, is the jarred specialty sauces, Chinese, different, different mm. Chinese sauce flavors in the jar, I forgot the brand that wow. came out and that was like revolutionary. So, oh you know, gosh. you could mix up your veg and your, your meat and then throw this jar on and miraculously it was going to be Chinese sweet and sour. <laughs> Or it was supposed to be. Right. And so that was as, that was as cheating as my mum would get. Wow. You know? That's amazing. I have to say I'm, yeah, because now being a mum myself and having my own business mm -hmm. and just the difficulty of finding time to take care of yourself and cook yeah. and all that sort of stuff, I am blown away by how much time she used to spend mm. cooking for us and shopping and prepping and all that sort of stuff, you know? Right. I'm, yeah. That in itself is a full-time job. Isn't right? it? Yeah. yeah. I, I am so happy in New York that all I have to do is go online to Seamless <laughs> and my food is delivered. Oh, you know, know, that's as, that's as much effort as I need to put in. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And especially when you're running a business too, it's like, you can only do so much. Right? Yeah, exactly. So exactly. Leave yeah. it to the specialists to make the food. <laughs> I think so. You know, I used to feel guilty about it because, mm. you know, it's also again, you know, this idea of uh, you could make it yourself, so why are you buying it and you're spending right. extra money in doing so? But actually, I think one thing about New York that helped me get over that is by the time I did go and buy all the groceries myself mm -hmm. and then prep something and made it or whatever, the cost of doing that versus the cost of ordering in, which is pretty economical. Yeah. You know, there's not really a, a huge difference, at least not the way I was cooking. <laughs> 
totally <laughs> you know same here. so so I, I feel less guilty about it from that and more about as you were saying just embracing the convenience of it yeah you know absolutely because you need that in your schedule like can't imagine taking all that time now that I used to spend cooking you know? yeah so how did you get from you know that sort of organic you know really land-based relationship to food to like feeding yourself when you were an adult? So when I was an adult, when I was 18, I moved to the city to go to university there, to Mm -hmm. Melbourne Uni. And so I lived in the city because it was too far to travel back and forth. In Australia, a lot of students will actually stay at home Mm -hmm. and go to the local university and because we don't have that many universities actually (laughs) and it's a it's a more economic way of kind of doing the university thing whereas I know here it's a big deal to kind of go into state or you know that sort of thing so anyway it was a big deal for for me to move out and move into the city and what was really cool and I'm pretty sure it was because of the way I was raised seeing my mom and my dad you know pretty much prep and cook almost every meal that um, when I went into the city, I went down to the local, we had a big, um, like a farmer's market, you know, in the city mm-hmm. area there called the Victorian market. Oh, I've been there. Have actually. you? Yeah, I, I went say. to Melbourne. And oh, I love the Vic, the Vic market. It's so cool. It's yeah. so cool. Oh, and you've got all amazing. the sheds with all the cheese yeah. and the meats and the this and the that. And so when I started at uni, um, I had a house share. We had a big old, like a brownstone. Oh, cool. We called Victorians there in Melbourne. And there were five of us living in the house. So I was on grocery shopping duty. So I'd go mm-hmm. down to the Vic Market with my big backpack on my bicycle <laughs> and I would just buy all the fresh produce and everything mm-hmm. and, and then take it back to the house. And then we did a rotation uh, where we all cooked one or two nights a week. And I loved it. Mm-hmm. Like I really enjoyed it because a part of it was also – the independence of kind of being your own person, choosing mm-hmm. your own foods, and also because, quite frankly, I was so sick to death of meat and three veg uh-huh. with the occasional Chinese sweet and sour uh-huh. that I was just craving variety. So when I went yeah. to Melbourne, it was, you know, you could get so many things and kebabs and this was marinated in that and chicken Kiev, uh-huh. you know, and so I had a whole addiction to chicken Kiev for, oh, nice. I think, my first year at university, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> So things like that. So that was a little bit of how it translated over. And I do remember a few times having to call my mom and say, hey, I want to cook this and how do I do that? Mm. Because it's interesting, Chrissy, like even though my mom was very Mm hands-on, she didn't, she may disagree, but she didn't really teach us much about cooking. Mm. Like I still wouldn't know how to make a roast, for example. Yet we had a roast once a week. Wow. You know, the Sunday roast kind of thing. Yeah. Um, she never really taught us that. She taught us how to bake. Mm-hmm. So we definitely know how to bake. I find that interesting. That is very interesting. It's like her domain or something. A little bit, she, right? Yeah. And also my mum was really proactive with my sister and I had to learn how to sew. Mm. I mean, she was pretty traditional, my mum. Wow, yeah. Had to know how to, you know, knit and, you know, definitely cooking and the cleaning mm-hmm. idea of that, like how to keep house. Right, was very, the basics. It was very much you're the girl, you're going to get married, you're going to have the kids, you're going to stay at home and you're right. going to do this, much to my um, – <laughs> You were all outraged yeah. at the idea of that, um, but she didn't really teach us how to cook. So a lot of it was then just exploring how to do that and getting excited about cookbooks. And mm-hmm. one of my best friends, um, Brett, he uh, was a 
chef in training at that time and he was living in that house with me Mm -hmm. so there was a lot of kind of fun stuff around food and exploring different cuisines and such so I have really fond memories actually of that transition yeah that's so excellent that you had a good time with it because I know it can be fraught you know leaving the home and exploring your own relationship to food so it sounds like it took you in a good direction yeah I think I was so happy to finally move out of my house my Mm -hmm. parents house and be independent so I think there was a euphoria that went along with all of that but I do think that there were other people that um, other students and such I observed when they moved out of home and they didn't make effort to cook dinner for themselves or make anything or do anything. Mm. Um, they would, you know, just have a box of crackers for dinner or that sort of thing, which made me curious because I was just like, how can you do that? I mean, yeah. I'm going to feel like crap. And so I do think it's because we always had solid prepared meals that that was what I then uh, put time into continuing to mm-hmm. do, you know, because that was just what you did and you felt good when you didn't. And if you didn't do it that way and you had right. crackers for dinner, you felt like, you didn't feel good. Yeah, totally. So felt like crap. You can swear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Crackers for dinner. Feel like crap. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it's, it, that's so interesting. You had that base or, you know, sort of knew like what, um, what went into a meal, what would make you feel good, what felt good in your body. Yeah. It's kind of like an intuitive, would you say you kind of grew up with intuitive eating? Like, Definitely. Yeah. I would say. You know, it's interesting. Um, I would say definitely there was an intuitive eating piece to how we ate at home, but there was also that expectation that what I have put on your plate, you must finish uh, yes. and we don't waste food here. Right. Um, so I do remember on occasion complaining that I was full and, you know, saying, and my mum saying you have to finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also remember um, her plating certain foods that just made me want to retch, mm. such as pumpkin. When I was a kid, I just – I love pumpkin now, but when I was a kid, I i don't know, something about texture oh, used yeah. to make me gag mm. um, and forcing me to stay at the table for hours and hours later until I finish it, you know, that kind yeah, of mentality like that was – you can't leave until – yeah. So, um, so, yeah, so – Definitely that, and there was a big emphasis on you had to go into dinner hungry. Mm. So, you know, you get home from school and you're starving and you're craving a snack. Right. And, you know, mum would say, yeah, yeah, grab a snack, but don't eat too much. You have to be, you know, you'll Mm. spoil your appetite for dinner. Right. Yeah, so there was a lot of that kind of conversation after school. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you can't be starving. Don't honor hunger too much. Yeah, wait for dinner. Yeah. I remember this. But fortunately living in the country and being more on on country hours, I guess, Uh um, we would have dinner quite, quite early. You know, my dad would get home at 5, 5.30, and we'd have dinner at 5.45, 6 o'clock. It was that kind of thing. Whereas here in New York, I don't know about you, but if if I eat by 8, it's a good night. Totally. You know? And for a lot of us, some of our work requires us to work at night. So, you know, often it can be 9 and 10 o'clock at night. Exactly. And that's the norm here in New York. York as well. I mean, you go yeah. out to a restaurant at six, you're the only person there. No one's there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the people with the little babies yeah. and the old folks. Yes, absolutely. I've done yeah. that. I've done that too. I, yeah, yeah. But the, when your newborn was around or mm-hmm. when your, your daughter was a newborn. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so that's really, that's really interesting. So you kind of, you know, flourished, it sounds like in the college environment because you were able to dictate your own types of foods that you would eat, you know, pick stuff that you would enjoy and experiment. Yeah. I guess, you know, it is interesting, again, when I reflect back, because when I grew up, I think 
we very much had a sense of kind of healthy eating. Mm -hmm. So, for example, my mum never bought soda or potato chips. Mm -hmm. And it's not that we weren't allowed to have those foods because to this day, one of my favourite foods is an Australian brand of potato chips called Samboy. Samboy mm. salt and vinegar to this day are my favourite <laughs> chips ever. Yeah. And uh, every time I go home to Australia, the first thing we do when we come back from the airport <laughs> is we stop into the supermarket and I load up on all my favourite oh, foods, cool. including my Samboy salt and vinegar potato chips. So it's not that we weren't allowed them, but we didn't have them at home. For snacks and such, my mum baked all the time. So wow. we had homemade cookies and homemade cake. And so we had a lot of food that we might call, I don't, but some people might say is not healthy food. Right. But that, that was in abundance and that was what we had and that was just normal. But I do also recall my dad being very, very obsessive about our bread had to be brown. Mm. We had to have brown bread <laughs> with fiber in it. And we had to have brown sugar. We couldn't have white sugar because wow. that was not nutritious. That's um, so interesting. Isn't that it? Time, like, and just the cyclical nature of these ideas about food. Yeah. Like, Cause that was like in the seventies yeah. and I was born in 69. So that was in the seventies. Yeah. He was banging on about brown bread and brown sugar. That's and of course so everyone else is eating Wonder Bread white right. sandwiches at school, and you're the one with the brown bread oh, sandwiches. Yeah. So you're totally the <laughs> outcast. <laughs> it wasn't really cool. It wasn't cool. No. And the no, brown sugar, it was like people would look at it and go, "What is that?" Oh, wow. So you know, there was definitely some some discomfort, I guess, right. around it from from that perspective. That's so interesting. Mm. Was he coming to it from kind of like a back to the land environmental sort of perspective, or how did he get those ideas? I I think so, but I think yeah. like his mother, um, who introduced introduced us to the whole steaming the vegetables mm. kind of technique when that first came out. My dad reads a lot about health and nutrition, mm. which is very curious because he doesn't like to read much. But he really, you know, really latched onto this idea around health. I do wonder as I look back, Christy, my dad's dad um, was a quite a portly man we would mm. say had a really big belly loved his food mm -hmm. and then he had um, a heart attack quite young like in his early 60s I mm. want to say but this was pre then but I'm wondering whether my dad was looking at his father and thinking that's not healthy dad yeah. and wanting to do it differently I'm not really sure I'm not really sure, sure where all the influences came from but mm. they were there and it's quite bizarre to think that they were there given you know that culture that I've just described to you my dad's a real manly man uh -huh. you know and here he is eating brown bread and brown sugar and right paying attention to yes, his health, health which is yeah, yeah traditionally considered sort of a woman's domain, domain. yeah right? yeah very interesting yeah wow so yeah so that was sort of in the background for you then growing up was like attention to nutritional values yes yes which I guess must have influenced me at some point yeah. to go into nutrition, but I never made that connection mm. until actually talking to you right now wow. today when I started to really reflect on that. But I'm sure it had a pretty big influence. Yeah. You know, that's so interesting. So did you start studying nutrition when you went to college or did you wind around for a bit? I moved around a bit. I actually mm. went to college thinking I would do medicine. Mm. So, and, and my reasoning for that was also family related my mom, my mother's mother, um, had a heart attack 
a very bad heart attack when I was 10 mm. and it had a huge impact on me. And she was actually a, a larger lady as well. Mm. And I just remember her then constantly being on these kind of weight loss, low cholesterol, um. low fat kind of diets to lose weight. And it was really hard and she hated it and she was always cheating so you know she was always getting in trouble from my mother okay. um but I remember then being very very affected by it um I was very close to my grandparents mm -hmm. so I think it really hit me on a very personal deep level yeah. and I made the decision then and there that I wanted to do something that would prevent people from having heart attacks mm -hmm. so at, as a 10 year old my only thought was I'm going to become a doctor and then mm -hmm. I can you know, help people. Um, and it wasn't until I got to uni or college, as we call it here, and I was on the medicine track and I was thinking about doing all that training in a hospital setting and working in a hospital setting and I was just thinking that is not the kind of environment I want to work in. Mm -hmm. But I, I would love the work and the science of it. And then a friend was talking about this career path as a nutritionist mm. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I think that's a much better match because it has all the science, but it also is much more heavy on the preventative right. as opposed to kind of, you know, putting a Band-Aid on something that's already happened. Right. So that was where it really sparked my interest. And then I kind of um, figured out and set up my major mm -hmm. um, in order to be go on, to be able to go on and do nutrition. In Australia at the time, so this is how old am I? So about 25 years ago, you don't do nutrition as an undergrad uh, like you do here. Mm -hmm. You do a science degree with a major in biochemistry or physiology, uh, okay. and then you go on and do a master's, and that's where you do all your nutrition um, classes and gotcha. studies. So, um, so I did an undergrad in biochem, which was – so hard. Oh, <laughs> oh my god. Oh yes. The biochem courses in the R D track were oh. the hardest thing I've ever done. They're, oh my I can't goodness. imagine a whole major of that. Like that just sounds I have to tell impossible. you, you know, I just oh, oh. I remember just yeah. drowning in it and organic chem and oh, all yeah. that the stuff. Worst. Hated it. Oh. But I did like the biochem because I'm very much, and I love the biology because mm. I'm about, you know, when I'm studying something, I can then look at, you know, that plant or that person and go, oh, wow, this is happening. Yeah. You know, this is actually happening. So that application, I love that. Totally. So anyway, so I did my undergrad in biochem. I then applied and was accepted to do my master's in nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually uh, was going to have to self-fund. Mm. Um, my parents, yeah, weren't able to, to help me out there. And, is uh, university covered in Australia but not master's? Or exactly, mm -hmm. yeah. So undergrad was pretty much free. When I went to – it's all taxpayer funded. So mm -hmm. our taxes are quite high, like a kind of a Canadian model where right. your taxes are high but you get free or almost free undergrad. Amazing. university and you also have free health care or yeah. almost free health care so they cover the basics i, I kind of like that model but you pay for it with your taxes right. so the first year that i started at university actually was the first year that they wanted to introduce an administration fee and i want to say the administration fee was six hundred dollars for the year and everything else was free mm -hmm. and i remember we all got together as the students and were demonstrating and uh -huh. this is outrageous and education should be free i mean little did we know <laughs> what you guys were doing over here oh, I know. right but um i have to say i i i like the meritocracy of if you can get the grades 
Yeah. Um, there are no barriers to entry to getting into university. I think that's totally. pretty powerful. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm. So you were able to do it, you know, as an undergrad, but then for the master's, it was like. So for the master's, I had to then um, actually take a year off to kind of get some money together. Mm. So I deferred the degree and Australia went through a massive recession and you guys also went through a massive recession about the same time. And there was just no jobs. I mean, I was, I had an undergrad in biochemistry (laughs) who was going to employ me. I mean, seriously. It's not really, you know, it's not one of those highly sought after degrees, you know, entry level, whatever. Person. Exactly. And, you know, it was so annoying at the time. I was so furious because Mm. a lot of my friends did undergrads um, in more of an arts, general Um, arts kind of, you know, 12 contact hours a week. And I was doing 30, 36 contact hours in my first two years. And in Australia, we have the English model. So your university degree is three years Mm. as opposed to four. So they, you, you, you're working your butt off, you know, they pack it in, you pack it in. Yeah. And if you don't get the scores, they kick you out because again, it's taxpayers dollars. So you either Mm. perform or you don't stay. So it's quite pressured. So I was having to work a job, but I've got this stupid undergrad in biochemistry (laughs) and no one would hire me because they're like, well, what can you do? Nothing. Right. Um, I know know, exactly. And I was so furious because, but you don't understand how hard this degree was to get, you know, like I had to work so hard for those three years and my, my other, you know, um, arts major friends just kind of partied through university. And so it felt very unfair. It felt very unfair. (laughs) These are the realities of life. Um, so anyway, being Australian, I found out about work over in Japan. So I grabbed Mm. my back pack and headed over to Japan, which is not far away from Australia. It's only about eight hours. And there was a whole industry there of teaching English by expats, you know, Mm -hmm. native English speakers. So a whole lot of Americans were there, a lot of Kiwis, a lot of Brits, Aussies, Mm -hmm. and some South Africans. And it was crazy and awesome. And you could make a lot of money in a very short period of time. And Mm. it was just at the end there, there, the bubble economy in Japan had just imploded, but it was, it was still pretty buoyant. Mm. Um, so there was still a lot of money around and a lot of opportunities. So I went there for a year. And, um, I ended up staying for eight years. Wow. Um, because I was, after the first year, you know, it's very expensive to set up an apartment there mm. and you have to pay what they call key money to the landlord where oh, you thank right. them for the honor of being able to rent their apartment. And once wow. you pay all this, you're in it for thousands and thousands. So I stayed for a second year to kind of make up for that. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was offered a HR manager position in the company I worked for. And we taught business English to a lot of the execs at, you know, Sony and Brother and Toyota and all of those big Japanese companies. So oh, cool. it was at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I ended up staying for eight years and worked at a university and did a lot of different things that would never have been available to me in Australia with my mm-hmm. biochemistry <laughs> undergrad degree, but in Japan it was very compelling. Yeah. And you were a native English speaker, so that yes. put you head and shoulders above. Yeah, exactly. It was so so crazy, but I did love it there and learned the language and the food and studied the food and such, mm. and was very fascinated there in the kind of Eastern health and Eastern food, Western health, Western yeah. food, and you know. The, longevity in japan is i think the you know the japanese have the longest longevity is that how you say that right, in yeah. the world yeah. and so observing that observing what we do in the west it was really interesting anyway long story short after eight years i certainly had saved up enough money 
came back to do my master's but decided I wasn't going to go back to Australia to mm. do it because I really like the international kind of living abroad thing. So I came here to NYU mm-hmm. and um, they interviewed me and for some reason they, yeah, they offered me a position to, <laughs> to start to do the master's oh, here. That's fabulous. So that was how I got to, to New York and that was in 99. Wow. Yeah. So I've been here, what, 16 years, I think, yeah. 17 years nearly. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a long time. I know. I've been here 11 and a half, and I'm like, how have I done it this long? Yeah, right. It's so long. It is. It takes a lot out of you. But it does take a lot out of you, but it's also an awesome city. Yeah. I, mean, I love it. I really love it. I know. Anytime I go somewhere else and I sort of think, would I want to live here? At first, I'm like, yeah, this would be amazing. And then after a few days, I'm like, never mind. There's not enough to do. Exactly. It's, exactly. There's always something to do here. Yeah. So. Yeah. I love it. I just yeah. love it. So I got here, did my master's at NYU in nutrition and always had my eye on going into private practice. Mm. That was really what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And when I got to NYU, so I've moved countries, right? I've yeah. left Japan. I've packed up my apartment there. I've shifts, you know, sold a lot of stuff. I've shipped stuff over here. My family's in Australia just to kind of give you a, a sense of how things were configured. Right. I then put down an unbelievable amount of money to pay for my first semester. Oh, God, yeah, because NYU is so expensive. It's so expensive. And at that point, the exchange rate was 50 cents to the dollar, meaning that, you know, let's say it was $20,000 or whatever. It was $40,000 Australian. I have to say that hurt. That hurt so much. So bad, I bet. As someone who never paid, had to pay for an undergrad to pay that amount, I was like, I didn't even own a car worth that much. You know, here I am just shelling out this money anyway. But I knew that if I wanted to stay here in the States and work, I also knew that there is a a high attachment here to a good university name. Right. So you're kind of buying the brand is how I viewed it. Um, Please, you know, let me know if you think differently. But because I know there are other wonderful programs um, at state colleges and such, but I thought that that was probably an important thing to do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so did that. Um, But in that first semester, I'd laid out this money. I'd left Japan. My family's all in Australia. Mm. I mean, my first set of classes for that semester, our instructor, our professor, at the very onset of the course says, put up your hand if you want to go into private practice. So, you know, a few of us put up our hands. And then she said, well, good luck with that <gasps> because as far as I know, no one's going to be paying you $100 an hour, so you may as well you forget about that. Wow. Christy, I'm not kidding That's you. That's terrible. I'm not kidding you. And <sighs> so, again, career change, leaving a different yeah. country, all that. I came home that night, I'm not kidding you, and I cried and cried and cried. That's devastating. Um, I was. I was oh. devastated. I was like, okay, what do I do? What yeah. do I do? Do I go back to Japan? My, I've still got a work visa there. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can't set up a private practice, then the right. only other options are working in a hospital as oh. a nutritionist, and I'm not doing that. Yeah. So, you know, it just kind of sent me on a bit of a tailspin. But anyway, you know, I guess you don't listen to the naysayers is, right. the, is, is what they say. And I guess I set out to kind of prove her wrong. So what I did then is I looked out and uh, and uh, introduced myself to a couple of key nutritionists here in the city mm. who had been very successful at setting up their own private practices and and such. And so I was able yeah. to then kind of hear their stories and what they had done, and and also realize we live in New York City. Totally. And as there much as people. we would love for insurance to pay for our services. 
Ugh. you know, you can still um, help a lot of people and people can afford your services. So, totally. yeah, yeah. But yeah, isn't that crazy? Isn't that horrendous that's, that a professor would say that? Completely Ooh. awful. I can't I imagine so. anyone saying that now. But, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, this person was in the model of, like, dietitians only work in hospitals, that's your role, you know, whatever. But We'll give like her the benefit of the doubt, but it was demoralizing, demoralizing to students, right? Oh, yeah, and if anyone had gone in thinking that's what they could do and that career path was open to them. It just shuts the door. Totally. What I do now actually is every semester I go and speak to the NYU RD Mm. students. Um, They have a counselling class with uh, a wonderful therapist, Lynn Schultz, and Lynn's a very good friend of mine. So I go in at the end of each semester and talk to them about private practice, excuse me, about private practice and other um, career options and that you know, the sky's the limit. Yeah. I mean, with nutrition and the world being so interested in nutrition and we are the experts, like totally. surely we can figure out a way to make a living. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with we what is it, a $48 billion diet industry? Oh, I know. Uh, I think like, was the latest figure I was presented with on that. Uh, I yeah, mean, it's goodness. ridiculous. It is. It is. Yeah. So, so I'm curious about your transition into eating disorder work then, mm-hmm. because, you know, and you said you had a personal history of an eating disorder too, mm-hmm. which I know from talking to you previously off mic was kind of around the time you were in Japan. Maybe That's right. Or, right. That's right. So how did that play into your trajectory with your career? So not at all, actually, mm-hmm. initially. Um, so I think if I, if I go back and we were talking about family and such, mm-hmm. I think that through my teens, I actually had some subclinical mm. body image stuff going on, you know, a little bit of experimentation with throwing out your lunch and doing all mm. that sort of stuff. And that was highly motivated by my father's comment to me about my body when I went through puberty. Mm. So when I went through puberty, um, you know, I, I had a little bit of a, a tomboy figure. Yeah. And um, and then I guess you develop hips and you develop breasts. And right. my father said to me, you've got an ass on you like a working bullock, which is like a, a buffalo, you know, that works <laughs> in the fields. Yeah. So yeah. I, I then perpetually was always looking around, <laughs> trying to look at my butt to see what he was seeing and got really uh, self-conscious about it and really thought that, oh, my God, I'm disfigured and no one's ever going to love me. So I used to get up at like 4.30 in the morning when everyone was asleep and run around, you know, do some laps outside and there were fights over dinner because I wouldn't eat potatoes and stuff like that. So that was a little bit of what was going on in my teen years. And then when I went to Japan, but I was always pretty weight steady and pretty much an intuitive eater. And quite yeah. frankly, I was very athletic. So I kind of really just ate whatever I wanted and didn't have a weight problem yeah. in reality. When I went to Japan, though, I think I put on the freshman 15 right. and then did what most of us do, which is go on a diet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that diet spiraled out of control. And the next thing you know, you're completely obsessed and you're avoiding this food and that food. And, you know, and then I started running and then I was running marathons to over, you know, to compensate for if I did allow myself to eat. And it was just a goddamn mess and a very, very rigid, torturous time where your life just becomes really about the food and the exercise and the calories and the weight on the scale. You know, it's really, it's a very, very narrow way to live your life yeah it destroys your creativity your potential to enjoy yourself it really does and social relationships i remember being invited out by you know because in japan there were always new expats coming you Mm. know and so that was what i loved actually is like meeting new people and such but only within certain rigid 
kind of structures. You know, if I was invited out for dinner, it had to be at a certain restaurant. If it wasn't at that restaurant, you know, I wouldn't go and just things like that. So anyway, so that was the scene. And then towards the end of those eight years, I tore my ITB in a pretty bad way that Mm -hmm. left me not able to run at all. And of course, that put me in a complete fit of, oh my God, here it comes. This is where I I finally become obese because I knew I was one day going to be obese, right? Right. And that was why we counted calories because that's the fear. Which is so crazy because it's like you can spend your whole childhood and adolescence not doing that and being stable. Weight regulated. Yeah. yeah, And then suddenly it's the the fear and the obsession comes in and it's like, well, just because I wasn't before doesn't mean now if I eased up my grip, I wouldn't just continue to gain weight in perpetuity forever. Yeah. It's so irrational, isn't it? Yeah. But it is so terrifying at the same time. So I had the injury, I'd moved here and couldn't run and I put on some weight. My clothes were all tight, so I went through that disgusting phase of wanting to crawl out of your skin. Yeah. But then fortunately I started my studies at NYU fairly quickly, mm-hmm. and so I just decided that I couldn't deal with my body and my weight, so I was just going to basically um, dissociate from that mm-hmm. and just focus on my studies, and that was all I was going to do. And I think that really helped me actually because I basically yeah. just ignored my body for about a year, uh-huh. and over that year, for various reasons, the guy I was living with actually – my fiance at the time, he just reminded me that, you know, just eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what? Wow. You know, intuitive eating coach. Yeah, exactly. So I That's started doing that a little bit by a little bit over time, you know, I was yeah. able to get to the other side and realize that, oh my goodness, I don't have to run a marathon every week and I don't have to starve myself and my body and my weight's regulated. Right. So that was kind of a compartmentalized experience in my life. And I was just so glad to not have that head spin going on all the time. So then when I did my master's, I thought that I would maybe do sports nutrition mm-hmm. because of the running interest or something in the cardiovascular field. Never occurred to me to do anything with eating disorders, yeah. probably because it was still too close. You know? I have the exact same experience. Did actually. you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I very similar in terms of, you know, the sort of compartmentalized part of my life that it, it existed. Like it was post-college I had, or senior year of college, I had gone abroad for my junior year, right. gained a little bit of weight, decided to go on a diet, spiraled out of control. And then I lost like a good year and a half of my life to obsession and craziness. And I stumbled into a relationship with a foodie who was like the first foodie I'd ever met. And I just thought he was the bee's knees for so many other reasons. He was like this amazing guy. And I was like, well, he wouldn't like me or consider dating me if he knew all my obsessions and craziness about food and my body. So I'm going to like act the part around him. I'm going to force myself to be adventurous and go out with him. Wow. And then, you know, whatever I do behind closed doors is my business. Like that's kind of how I first was able to get, you know, a toe in. And then over time we got, you know, we ended up dating for a year and a half. So we spent more and more time together. There was less and less time to to do my crazy stuff. And then I also started writing about food during that time and became a food journalist. So then it was like the cognitive dissonance of keeping up the disordered stuff with this other identity was very great. And I felt like a fraud half the time. And I still was kind of doing a little bit of the disordered stuff, but little by little, it just, I just had to like push it aside and let it go because of this other life I was building. Wow. How fascinating. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, so by the time I went back to school for nutrition, I was like, 
you know, I had started writing about food and nutrition. I had built up a, a sort of practice in that and was very interested in, you know, nutrition policy and um, making change in, in sort of a larger sense. So I decided to go back to school for a master's of public health nutrition and the RD. And I thought, you know, I'll do counseling. I've always wanted to have a, a small private practice, but nutrition policy is what I really want to focus on. Right. No idea, no inkling that I would work with eating disorders ever. You know, it wasn't even on the radar, but right. I think also it was too close, you yeah. know, cause I was still coming out of the last of it when I went back to school. Yeah. So school really helped cement for me. Like when I learned the science and learned, you know, got exposed to intuitive eating along the way. And so then really understood like what I had been doing to my body was crazy. But I think it took that to, to really undo the last, you know, hold of it. So never even considered it until I started the podcast actually. And wow. then, then I was like this, you know, cause it, well, I started the podcast because I missed like talking to people about their relationships to food. And that was a piece that, you know, I had gotten while writing about food that I wasn't really getting working in policy. So I spent three years working at the city department of health and doing a lot of like, you know, bringing fresh food into hospitals and homeless shelters and schools and stuff like that. Fantastic. Wonderful work. Yeah. And, um, but you know, involved a lot of like number crunching and writing reports and bureaucracy and all that stuff. So I was kind of missing that like human element of talking to people about food. And I just decided to do the podcast for that. But as I got more into it, I was talking to people about things that, and, you know, connecting with them around eating disorder histories. And I was like, wait a minute, this is, this is too compelling to ignore. And maybe this is something that I should explore. So yeah, that's when I did the rotation of balance actually it was, you know, sort of around that time I was like, I need to get some exposure to this world and see if it's a fit. And when I was at balance, I was like, this feels like home. This feels like where I'm supposed to be. So, wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that you had gone through such a trend. Like that's a very significant transitional point it for was. you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad was, it happened to you. I, too. <laughs> I know. And discovering you as a recovered person doing this work, I think really cemented it for me because huh. I had never, I had known people who had like odd relationships to food or sort of eating disorder histories that worked in nutrition policy or worked in food writing, you know, so I kind of knew like, it's okay to have this convoluted history. I'm not a bad person for doing, you know, for having that and trying to do the work I'm doing. Like I'm in good company, but I hadn't known anybody who specifically was like, I am recovered and I'm working to help others recover. Like that was very foreign to me at the time. So I sort of was like, I don't know if I can do this. And, you know, if, if I would be considered a fraud or not, you know, not taken seriously having had this history, but then I discovered there's this whole world. And in fact, maybe up to 50% of clinicians who work with eating disorders have some personal history of it. So it's Absolutely. like, you know, which is amazing. Good company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to your point, I mean, I actually didn't come out about my eating disorder history for years. And the reason I didn't do that is, well, here in the Northeast, you know, being a good clinician is about you knowing the research and you being yeah. able to help and motivate your clients and hold them through a very difficult recovery process. Um, it's got zero to do with your own personal experience. Right. And they, they tend to really look down on, on that, you know. Yeah. So, but in California, you know, Carolyn Coston, who's an amazing mentor and friend and uh, a real leader in our field, she was one of the first clinicians to actively go out and say, I'm recovered yeah. and start her own eating sort of treatment center 
in response to that because there was nothing available for her when she was going through her own recovery. Right. So she's been a person I think that's influenced a lot of us clinicians to kind of speak up because she's actually, she's been on the receiving end of a lot of flack, a lot of flack over the years. And it's only now that the research, and this is what actually changed my mind, Christy, is there's research now that for our clients, for them to know someone who's actually gone through recovery mm-hmm. is incredibly helpful for them in their own recovery yeah. because it gives them hope. So when I realized that it had the uh, potential to be something very, very positive for my clients, I felt almost guilty if I didn't share it in mm. the sense of I'm withholding information that could be helpful to them. Yeah. So I felt a lot better about sharing the information because I was also really frightened that I would hurt people. Like we're RDs, but we're not therapists. So I'm always cautious about not doing something that psychologically might hurt a client inadvertently, right. you know? Um, yeah, because we get so little training on the counseling side of things. as our crazy. Days. And to go into eating disorders, there's so much therapy that goes on whether you want it to or not. Yeah. You know, there's a lot yeah. of psychological issues that are really tied up with the food and being the person who holds the food and the meal plan and is, you know, seen as the food police. That's can right. Be really fraught. So Absolutely. Very, very fraught. So, yeah, um, so Carolyn was the one who really coached me and I was talking to her for about three years mm. around coming out <laughs> and my, my ease with that or my, my discomfort with that, I should say. Yeah. And then finally one day at a, con- a conference, in fact, in front of, of a group of well-established people in our field, um, Carolyn just blurted out to me, you know, uh, in front of all of them. So are you going to tell everyone that you're, you're coming out of the closet as a recovered clinician? Oh and I turned beetroot oh, red. Yes. And then she realized that she'd made a mistake. Like she hadn't intended to do that. And the poor woman, so oh, she was forever no. apologetic. But anyway, little bit by little bit after that, I then started to sit down with our clients here and talk to them about my recovery story mm. with the hope that, gosh, if it's helpful, I'm more than happy to share it, you know? Totally. Um, and all my staff know. But what I have done here is I know not everyone wants to share. Right. So with the staff, I've told them very openly that, you know, it is – if you've had your own issues around food, it is your own personal history. So I don't want anyone to feel that they have to share. But uh, it's been very interesting because perhaps like yourself, when I lead with, you know, the fact that I'm recovered, you know, when I'm interviewing new people to come and join mm-hmm. our team and I let them know that straight out of the hat, I find that the response is one of relief, like, oh, we can actually talk about this. Totally. And as you said, the latest stats from a survey with the AED, the Academy of Eating Disorders, I did a presentation with Carolyn on this very thing, and the stats were 50 to 60% of us who work in this field have our own history. So it's kind of the white elephant in the room that no one's talking about, you know, so – It's so understandable too, because, you know, if you're, I mean, there's the research showing that if you ever have a period when you become restricted of food, you tend to get obsessed with food and that can really influence your career choices. Right. And then also that, you know, having a personal history with this stuff makes you so much more interested and curious and want to pursue information about it. So yeah, it's it's only natural that people would, you know, gravitate to this field. It makes sense, doesn't it? And I think the hook for me, the hook for me was, When I started working with clients with another nutritionist, I was working in her private practice initially Mm. to get started before I started my own. And um, little bit by little bit, I was seeing clients who wanted to lose 10 pounds or I had this constant 15 pound fluctuation. And as I got into it, thinking that they were 
weight loss clients. It was early in my career. Right. We did weight loss back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway, I know. I as feel I, like we're we're all nobody's exempt in this field. It's like I've done it too. It's, I know. Oh, that's what we were trained yes. to do. Yeah. That's how we were trained. My goodness. I know. The, oh, oh my goodness. Anyway, our training needs an overhaul. Anyway, yeah, I know. That's like it? a whole other <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. Yes, I know. And I, so yeah. um uh what was interesting there is as I would delve in I realized that I was getting a vibe from them, a sense of, you know, all was not well and all was not neutral. And I realized that that was the hook for me because I realized where their head was at because I had been there, the head spin that was going on. So even though they looked so-called normal, of normal or average weight, there was a hell of a lot going on um, in their heads that was causing them significant grief really so that was the hook for me because they then responded because they realized that I kind of knew or could sense that more was going on right you know so so that was really fulfilling and that was from then on it was just it was wonderful you know to be able to really delve and ask those questions that unless you've been there I don't know that you would know to ask those questions absolutely I know and I've heard so many clients say that like other providers they've been to sort of glossed over things or said, you know, well, you're at a healthy weight, so you're fine. And it's like, that really does not tell the whole story. Not at all. I mean, hopefully, you know, as the years go by, that will become more and more common knowledge because I think right now it's very specialized knowledge. It's like among people who treat eating disorders or who've been there, you know, to think, well, look beyond the weight to this person's relationship to food or what they're doing to achieve or maintain this weight that they're at. Right. But exactly. And one of the key questions is how much of your day do you spend thinking about food? Oh, when yeah. you ask people that it just levels them, yeah. you know, cause I remember all of my day was spent thinking about food and calories and weight and such. Totally. And I don't, I, but you know, I don't know about you, but I think we were still very, very productive. At least I thought I was pretty productive in my job. I just do not know how. It's crazy to constantly distracted by that. I know it's really interesting to see like how much energy you waste doing that and how much more, you know, what could you have done with that time? Right. Like in that mental space. Oh my God, Christy, (sighs) you just hit it on the head because when I think about coming to the States and doing my, uh, my graduate degree here in nutrition, when I think about building private practice, when I think about building balance, yeah. I reflect back on that time and I think all that energy that went into that eating disorder that our clients are also putting all their energy into, you know, when you get over that and you recover, you can channel all of that energy into creating other things, you know? So it's it's, unbelievable because it's, it's a lovely reminder, totally, you know, of what it sucks out of your life and it leaves you with very little, you know, absolutely um, to do very little to show if you will. Absolutely. Um, so that that's a nice reminder. I try to remind myself of that. And it's so cool to see people who are very successful at what they do and have clearly put a lot of time in. Like, I mean, the listeners can't see where we're sitting right now, but your space is amazing. And you like helped design this space and have built just such a beautiful place for people to recover where everything, there's so much attention to every detail that like creates a really nurturing environment. Thanks, Christine. And, you know, I know how much work goes into that, having decorated just a small 120-square-foot office like, and trying, <laughs> you know, and having a, a solo practice where I try to do that stuff. I can only imagine, you know, developing a huge business 
right? And it's like that kind of energy. It takes so much energy, you know, and energy in the form of calories even, right? It takes energy to give your brain the glucose to think about these things, right? And it takes energy that you could have spent spinning your wheels about food and weight and exercise, you know, to think about what is your vision for this practice or how can you most effectively help people recover? So like to have a model of someone like that, like you and Carolyn Costin and, you know, all of us who are doing this work who are recovered, I think is such a cool thing to hold up to people and be like, look, this is what all that energy gets you. Like you can actually make something cool with it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. No, I totally agree. Yeah. So I think it's really amazing what you've done and tell us about balance and where people can find you online and and just a little bit about the programs you run too. Absolutely. So balance, um, we're here on West 27th street in the heart of New York city between sixth and seventh. And we are very excited to launch our brand new website today. So this is exciting to be talking to you about it. And our website is balanced TX. Dot com. Check it out. We're very excited about yes. that. And actually the website has a lot of cool photos from our space. So you'll get a good sense of, of what that looks like. Yeah. Um, and so we have, it's, we're um, a boutique outpatient treatment center. So we have a full day program Monday through Friday um, where our clients come in for 30 hours a week. They can then step down to our evening program, which is three nights a week where you do dinner and therapy. And there's an optional Saturday extension that goes on with that, along with that. And then after clients make their way through those two programs, so they can step down to something that's a little less intensive, but more kind of ongoing and and for the longer term with our outpatient groups or individual nutrition sessions. We also do meal support. So which we've tried, what we're attempting to do, striving to do is offer basically three to four levels of care so that people can, you know, move through those and hence the great work that you might do in residential, for example, you come back to New York, to your life, step back into therapy, step back into your nutrition uh, sessions. Before I started balance, the reason I started balance is because that was the common scenario and the clients would destabilize over and over and over again and go back to residential. It was heartbreaking. So I started balance to provide a step down, a better step down opportunity here in New York. And so that's really been the whole goal behind it. That's so wonderful to have that because I think, yeah, you know, integrating back into your life after treatment is the biggest challenge for most people, right? And having, you know, experienced life without an eating disorder for a a short period of time and treatment and then going back to the place where, you know, all the conditions were there for you to use your eating disorder in the first place. That's right. Absolutely. It's a huge challenge. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, and we just know that, you know, if people have access to good step down, opportunities the relapse rate significantly reduces significantly reduces so i'm all about that because i mean recovery from an eating disorder is such a long convoluted process that anything that we can do to you know help our clients move through through that as fast as they possibly can even though it's a slow process you know without too many hiccups and and uh steps backward i'm I'm all about that 
Totally. Now it's amazing what you've done. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been great talking with you. You too, Christy. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guest for being here and to you guys for listening. We'll be back again in two weeks with another brand new episode. So be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Android or whatever your favorite podcast app is if you haven't done so already. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch with you online. The best way is by email. So if you join my email VIP list, you'll get exclusive tips about intuitive eating and body positivity and updates about all my work as well well as new episodes of the podcast. So if you go to christyharrison.com slash email, you can sign up there. That's christyharrison.com slash email. And I would love to have you guys all on my VIP list. And then you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Food Psych on Facebook and Food Psych Pod on Twitter. And then I am also on Instagram, just me this time. I don't have a separate account for the podcast, but I'm on Instagram at Christy Harrison. And the first I is a one. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect